Heavenly Father, you have a difficult lesson for us today. Break our hearts with your word and fill us with your spirit. We having trouble with the mic? Okay. Do you want to be happy? I do. The penman of our Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson, wrote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Jefferson's notion of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is a revision of the writings of the 17th century English philosopher John Locke, who said that we had the right to life, liberty, and property. Now you may or may not know it, Jefferson is no hero of mine, but the man surely has a point on his emphasis on seeking happiness. Hopes and dreams are a large part of what it is to be human. Locke's French contemporary, the mathematician, physicist, inventor, writer, and Christian philosopher Blaise Pascal put it this way. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of man even those who hang themselves. Because we are by nature seekers of happiness, we do what we do because we want what we want, when we want it, as much as we want, for as long as we want. We're, we seek after happiness like a guided missile, even if it's hard to attain, even if it hurts to get it. What we desire is what moves us to act. But what will it take to make you happy? The deepest desire of your heart is what you are willing to devote your life to, not as a means to an end, but as an end in itself that will finally satisfy. In the 1991 movie City Slickers, the sage cowboy Curly, played by Jack Palance, is sharing his wisdom with his would-be protege, Mitch, played by Billy Crystal. Y'all come up here about the same time with the same problems. Spend about 50 weeks a year getting knots in your rope 
And then, and then you think two weeks up here is going to untie them for you. Do you know what the secret to life is? No. What? This. Your finger? One thing. Just one thing. You stick to that, and the rest of life don't mean nothing. That's great, but what is that one thing? That's what you got to figure out. So what is your one thing? Figuring that out. That's what today's passage is all about. Most people don't believe there's just one thing that motivates us, but many things. The influential 20th century psychologist, Abraham Maslow, popularized an idea that has captivated our thinking. A human being is essentially a giant need bucket. The key to happiness, according to Maslow, is to fill the bucket. We have to get those needs met so that we can finally concentrate our energy on unlocking the potential that lies within us. Be all that you can be. That was the slogan the year I was commissioned in the army. That, according to the world, is the key to happiness. So, because this idea is so pervasive, let's take a little closer look at Maslow's bucket. At the bottom are our physical needs. Food, water, shelter, sleep, even sex. Until we get enough of these things, we really aren't motivated to anything higher. But once these needs are met, they no longer are enough to get us out of bed in the morning. The next level is our fear of loss. We need our world to have enough safety, security, order, stability, so that we're not in constant fear of losing what we already have. Once we feel safe, we want to belong. We want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. We want to be accepted and loved, part of a family, to have loyal friends. Once our place in the pack is assured, we want to stand out. We want to feel good about ourselves, what we've accomplished. We want to be recognized for our competence, and we want status. And after that, we have these growth needs cognitively. We need to learn and know, understand. And aesthetic needs. We need to see beauty, excellence, symmetry. And when our bucket is finally full, we reach a state of harmony and understanding in which we are achieving our full potential. Maslow called this self-actualization, and he believed it was the key to happiness. 
freeing us to leave our selfishness behind and become one with the world. Makes sense, doesn't it? Once our need bucket is full, we can start loving the world. When we have everything we need, we can be ourselves. And to be yourself is to be happy. Two problems, really. One, our need bucket is a black hole. There is no filling that thing. But even if I could satisfy, satisfy myself enough so that I had love leftovers for the world, there's still no room in this model for God. So my first point today is a warning. If you are busy trying to fill your bucket, danger, you are not on the road to salvation. 1 John chapter 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Do not love the world. But Maslow had a point, didn't he? I have legitimate needs. I need the world. I need what it has to offer. I need food and water. I need a safe place for my grandchildren to grow up in. I need friends, a sense of accomplishment, a little respect. I need to learn, know, and understand things about this world. I need to see beauty, appreciate and admire the beauty that's in this world. I need to achieve my potential. What is so wrong with wanting these things that I need? It's my right to seek them isn't it? Do not love the world. Hard teaching. What is this world that John doesn't want us to love? To steal from my childhood schoolhouse rock, well, every person you can know and every place that you can go and everything that you can show. That's the world. But you know, that includes so many wonderful things. These two cute little dogs that follow Brenda around the house. They're part of my world. And a cat who pretends he doesn't care. <laughs> Brenda herself my children, my granddaughters, my friends, everything I've ever had, everything I've ever done, my home, this church, my school, my country. My health. This is my entire world. How can I not love that? How can I not care? 
do not love the world. Allow me to let you in on a secret. I have another world. It's all my own. I carry it with me in here. My father is still there. But he makes a lot more sense than he did when he was alive. And my long-lost brother, he's been found in there. And he's safe and happy and comfortable. This world is a sort of a mirror image of the world that God has created. But it's also got some of the books I've read and some of the movies I've watched and a few little touches that are all my own. An artifact very much like this was featured in the movie Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. It was called The Mirror of Erised. Because on its frame was carved the following inscription. Erised stra eru oit ube kafru oit on wosi. I'll translate this mysterious phrase for you in a second. Young orphan Harry stumbles upon this mirror in an empty classroom at Hogwarts. And he is captivated by what he sees when he looks in it. He sees not only his own reflection, but the reflection of his parents sitting beside him, standing beside him with love and pride in their eyes. It's so realistic that he has to turn around to confirm what he already knows is true. They're not really there. Night after night, he returns to gaze longingly into that mirror. And one night, Albus Dumbledore, headmaster of the school, is there with him. Back again, Harry. I see that you, like so many before you, have discovered the delights of the mirror of Arised. I trust by now you know what it does. Let me give you a clue. The happiest man on earth would look into the mirror and see only himself exactly as he is. Harry answers, so then it shows us what we want, whatever we want. Yes and no. It shows us nothing more than the deepest desires of our Now you, Harry, who have never known your family, you see them standing beside you. But remember this, Harry. This mirror gives us neither knowledge nor truth. Men have wasted away in front of it, even gone mad. That is why tomorrow it will be moved to a new home. And I must ask you not to go looking for it again. It does not do to dwell on dreams, Harry, and forget to live. Erised stra eru oit kafru oit onwosi. Read backwards. I show not your face, but your heart's desire.
My second point is this. Examine how you are spending your time. If you spend most of it trying to fill your need bucket, you are on the road to destruction. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eye, and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. Dumbledore is wrong. The happiest man on earth, looking into the mirror of his desire, would see the image of the invisible God. This is the original design of unfallen man. But in my own broken mirror of erised, my mirror of desire, there is an overlay of the things that I want, things I need, things that I intend to have and keep forever. My precious. <laughs> Do you remember all that John has just finished talking about? Walking in the light and walking in darkness? Self-deception is a serious character flaw. Continuing to gaze into the mirror of your desire when you know the truth is willful blindness. God has a name for willful blindness. He calls it idolatry. John, it turns out, has a very different classification system from Abraham Maslow about your perceived needs. First, the desires of the flesh. These are the things that I already have that I am desperate to keep. My home, my job, my health, my youth and good looks, my 66 Camaro, the picture of my mother, that last slice of apple pie that I left in the refrigerator for tomorrow. The battle cry of this desire of the flesh is mine. That is mine by right. No one takes it from me. If these things are taken from us, we seek revenge. And we become very, very angry with God for taking them from us or allowing them to be taken. And yet, they were never really ours to begin with. That is the point of the book of Job. We take defensive actions to preserve, protect, and defend these priceless things. We buy insurance. We buy a gun. We hide our alcohol and cigarettes. We hide food in that little refrigerator in the closet. Back in the 60s, Back in the 60s, we built bomb shelters. Next year, maybe we'll build a big wall. Second are the desires of the eye. These are the things that you don't yet have, and you will not be 
happy until you get them. If only you had them, then you would most definitely be happy. The refrain of this desire is, if only. If only I had the winning Powerball ticket. A big house on the lake. My own jet. A big boat. A nicer spouse. We spend a lot of time and effort scheming to get these things. We even have the audacity to pray for them. There's Christian religious movement that's sweeping the world right now. It's called the Health, Wealth, and Prosperity Gospel. Are you really surprised when God doesn't honor your request for these things? In fact, when he gave them all to Solomon, we learn in the book of Ecclesiastes that they are worthless. That was the real wisdom of Solomon. James put it this way, James chapter 4, verses 3 to 4. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Finally, the top of the need bucket is the pride of life. This is the proto-fantasy, the original sin. It is the idea that my life matters. I am significant, important, famous, powerful, rich, a man of influence. No matter what you do, no matter what you have, no matter who you are, it will never be enough to quench this fire. Because deep inside is the knowledge that somehow, someday, you and everything you've ever done will be forgotten. My third and final point is this. If you wish to have assurance of salvation, eternal salvation, you must give up the deepest desire of your heart for something even better. In the final verse, John clarifies why it's wrong to pin our happiness on any of these things. And it's simply this. We can't keep them. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. According to our original design plan, man is an eternal being. We can feel it. Something has gone horribly, horribly wrong. The world as we know it is passing away. We can't hang on to it. We are dying. 
The eternity that we were designed for is being pried out of our fingers, minute by precious minute. This is by the decree of God, found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Do you find it remarkable how long the patriarchs lived in Genesis chapter 5? Typically eight or nine hundred years. In Genesis 2, the Lord tells Adam that the day he eats of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, on that day, dying, he will surely die. Tradition is that since Adam didn't die that day, the Lord must have been referring to some sort of spiritual death. No. Adam started dying that day. Physically dying. It's just that his dying would take a very, very long time. When Eve had her first son, she named him Cain, which sounds like the Hebrew word for to get. Because by God's grace, she had gotten a man. Calling to mind that God had promised her an offspring that would slay the serpent and regain what had been lost. Do you think that Adam died just a little bit the day his second son died at the hands of his first. How much more pain and loss did he experience in his long life? 930 years is a very, very long time to spend dying. Three score and ten years is shorter. Too short, you may think, but surprisingly more, merc more merciful. And yet, still plenty of time to get hopelessly entangled in the things of this world. Paul tells us that we're crucified with Christ. But you know, crucifixion is a slow, painful death. We don't die to the world the moment we're born again. I see my friend Steve back there. You know, he tells me that the problem with a living sacrifice is it keeps trying to crawl off the altar. <laughs> Did you know that Christ was tempted when he was on the cross? We don't think of the cross as a place of temptation, but it was. The Roman nails were not sufficient to hold him on it. As he said in John chapter 10, verses 17 through 18, for this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my Father. Like Our Lady sang to you today, he could have called 10,000 
angels. Every second the Lord spent in agony on that cross was an act of will. Well, like Christ's crucifixion, our own deaths to the things of this world are slow, painful, and voluntary. And yet Peter tells us, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. John Piper puts it this way, This is the great business of the Christian life, to put our mouths out of the taste for those pleasures with which the tempter baits his hook. Or Martin Luther before him, let good and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body he may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Do you know what strength it takes to let go of those precious things? Actually, it takes superhuman strength. That's where the gospel comes in, because fortunately, that strength has been purchased for you. But just because the gospel is excellent good news, that doesn't mean that it's free or even cheap. It's an uneven exchange. All our sin... For his grace, what a glorious exchange. Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. We are, John Piper tells us this, we are surrounded by unconverted people who think they do believe in Jesus. Drunks in the streets say they believe. Unmarried couples sleeping together say they believe. Elderly people who haven't sought worship or fellowship for 40 years say they believe. All kinds of lukewarm, world-loving church attenders say they believe. The world abounds with millions of unconverted people who say they believe in Jesus. Do you think Piper's overstating his case? Then listen to these chilling words from our Lord. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name, and then will I declare to them, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Have you ever wrestled with the story of the rich young ruler in Mark 8? And Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Surely this can't apply to me. I don't need to give up all my possessions, do I? Well, it sure does. If your possessions are keeping you from putting all your trust in him alone, you had best rid yourself of them. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. The joy of the Lord is our strength. We need to nurture that strength. How do you nurture the joy of the Lord to get the strength to let go of the world? You have to ask for it. And you only get enough for today. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass me by. Yet not my will, but thine be done. Augustine said, he loves thee too little, who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. This is the secret to the power of Christian prayer. Not that God will give you what you want, but that God will fill you with a desire for what he gives. C.S. Lewis put it another way. Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Have you bought the kingdom of heaven? It is costly, but by all means count the cost. But whatever you do, buy that field. And when you do, don't be afraid that the world will be harmed for the loss of your love for it. The overflow of love that you receive when you rejoice in God will definitely meet the needs of a dry and thirsty land. Because Dumbledore was wrong. The happiest man in the world, when he gazes in the mirror of desire, will see no longer his own reflection at all. Rather, he will gaze upon the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, the face of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, the depth of the riches of your wisdom and knowledge. How unsearchable your judgments. How inscrutable your ways. We beg you, help us to know you better and fill us with joy in you alone so that the strength of our joy in you will set us free from the captivity of our love for the world. And we ask these things in the name of your beloved Son, our great high priest, Jesus Christ.